0: Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. I just wanted to say before we launch into our very, very inspirational guests for today that... If you're enjoying the podcast, which I'm assuming you are because you keep coming back for more, to all new listeners, hello, please join us. Um, Could you please subscribe? I find it difficult to say that word. Could you please subscribe (laughs) to The Big Travel Podcast on whatever app you're using, especially if it's Apple or Spotify And if you can give us a review, that'll be amazing. Obviously, it'd be lovely if you gave us five stars and wrote something nice. i tell you why. It's because, particularly with Apple, new subscribers get us to the top of the charts. And we have been at number one regularly. We've got listeners in over 160 countries at the last count. And sometimes we're in the top 10 in some of these. We've had random number ones around the world. But it really helps with the algorithms if we get more reviews and more listeners that subscribe and of course subscribing oh my goodness why can't I say that is absolutely free and it just means that you get the latest episodes popping into your app whenever they're released rather than you having to seek them out so please do me a favor do us all a favor that would be really lovely if you could subscribe how do YouTubers do it damn it if you could do that yeah review and subscribe thingy thank you very much now on today's episode. Ugh, oh, what a story. You're going to absolutely love this. Kevin Chaplin left behind his banking career to establish South Africa's Ubuntu Foundation and rescue the Amy Foundation, named after American student Amy Beale, from bankruptcy. Kevin and I talk about growing up under apartheid, the hardship of life still in the townships, the challenges faced by Cape Town's children and young adults, taking a team of young singers to L.A., taking a team of young hockey players to Northern Ireland, his book, Can Do, Making the Impossible Possible, and how the boys who killed Amy Beale turned their lives around. Kevin Chaplin is on the Big Trouble You're sitting here in your hotel room in London because you're happy to be here in London (laughs) yeah very happy to be here I'm sure and because you're launching your book now I think we should first of all let's start with your book which sounds exactly what I need right now very motivational what many of us need I think
1: yes um, and that's the reason I wrote it Lisa because I just feel that we all need to learn from one another and I've been very blessed throughout my life and there was just so many lessons and stories and insights that I wanted to share with everybody you know I always feel why die with all your knowledge and all your experience share it with the world you know and that's really why I wrote it because I've been through ups and downs and tough times and good times and I think we can all learn from each other.
0: It feels like many people I know are going through a tough time at the moment life feels really hard do you do you get the sense of that?
1: Absolutely I think more so than ever you know i um, not just in the UK or South Africa, all over the world. I I spent um, last month doing a series of lectures at five different universities in the Netherlands. And they also, there's a lot of, I think, stress and tension, whatever's going on, whether it's wars or um, immigrants or um, financial, you know, there's just so much hitting everybody. And I just feel that I want to inspire people that, you know, don't give up. You can overcome anything. If if I look at what I've had to um, or what's come my way and the challenges I've had to overcome, and I think, well, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And that's really why the title of the book is called Can Do, Making the Impossible Possible.
0: What do you think um, has been your big, biggest challenge in life?
1: Well, there's been a few. The first big one was growing up during date. And um, my father was a very um, jealous, insanely jealous person who was obsessed with my mother. And so didn't really want children, really didn't want children. And my mother was very wise though. She realized that us, we had, uh, there were three boys. We needed good male role models. And that's probably the very first lesson of the book. You know, don't blame your past. I could have easily sort of, Having a because he was really quite cruel to be honest he 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 really he was actually very um introvert an extreme introvert which is quite strange because I'm an extrovert and I think being the eldest I came between my mother and him in terms of what he wanted he just wanted her to himself but that taught me a lot because I had good uncles good grandfathers good male role models that my mother ensured and. So I always say to people, ensure you, whether it's for your children, your daughters, your sons, for yourself, always make sure you have people to learn from. And for the rest of my life, that's actually what I did. I learned from my uncles, my grandfather. The minute I started working, there were certain people in business I sort of learned from. I I, I wasn't shy to go up to some very um, important people and say, you know, I'd love you to be my uh, mentor. Would you consider that? And. You know, it's not always um, a yes. And you have to accept that sometimes people don't have the time. But one of the things I say is never be shy to go and ask. So that's the one big challenge I had to overcome is having a father who really did hate me. And I turned it around. And the the, the sad thing is, once my mother passed away, he became a totally different person. And I was able to, because before that, I really, once my mother's gone, I never wanted to see him again. But... God gave me the opportunity to mend that because he changed and then I could build a relationship with him. He only lasted about two years after she passed away a- about five years ago. The other big thing was, I think, moving on from banking after 26 years, everybody said, you'll never make it. Everybody only wants to know you because you're the head of the, you know, the top job. And, you know, that's why people, can-. And, and I wanted to show them that that's not true. Not everybody's just fickle. And so I was able to overcome that, and I started the South African Ubuntu Foundation. And then three months after that, an organization called the Amy Beale Foundation went bankrupt. And um, I'm sure we can talk a little bit more about the Amy Beale Foundation, because it's such a powerful story, Lisa, of forgiveness and Mm -hmm. reconciliation and restorative justice, and especially of the boys who killed Amy, who work for me still, and are remarkable young men. And I'll explain the reason they went bankrupt, but that was in 2006. And as I said, it was three months after I started the Ubuntu foundation. And I I had the privilege to meet Amy's mother who came to South Africa to close the foundation because there was no money. And I said, please don't, the youth are the future. And she said, well, I've got no choice. There's no money. And I didn't hesitate when she said, well, you've started the Ubuntu foundation, you've left banking. Why don't you take it over? And that's what I did. And, It's been a tough, tough journey, but the most rewarding and enriching experience I could ever have imagined. So we grew it from 2006. And one of the things I did was I convinced our landlord to stop charging us rent because Mm. I wasn't this wealthy philanthropist that could throw millions into this organization. But luckily, I was a well-paid banker. So I used my own money for the first sort of two years, but that's not sustainable. And so one of the things is, you know, running it like a business because, In South Africa, and I'm sure all over the world, there's a lot of skepticism about nonprofits. Is the money wasted? You know, greed, corruption, inefficiency. And that's very, very typical in South Africa because over 70% of nonprofits in South Africa close down after three years. So that's the thing we have to uh, deal with. So I was determined to show that you can run a nonprofit like a business. There's just no profits. It all must go on the beneficiaries, which in our case are the children and the youth so i convinced the landlord to stop charging us rent which was a huge uh, mm. benefit because nobody wants to make a donation to cover rent so that that helped us a lot and by 2014 things were going well and all of a sudden the landlord gave me one month's notice to take back our floor and you know in one month what could i do i mean i can't find donors to cover rent i couldn't at that time the economy had hit rock bottom in south africa we had a very corrupt um, President, I'm sure you heard about President Zuma and all his shenanigans. So everybody, Lisa just said, "Well, Kevin, you've done your bit. There's no ways you can now if you don't have free rent and you've got to go and find new premises. Rather just close it down." And there were very, very few people who said, "Come on, you can do it." And I just thought, "How can By that time, we had almost 2,000 children in our programs. We had you know over 100 staff, and I thought, "How can I close down? It's it just..." And it's a long story, and I go into it in detail in the book about how did we take it from being given notice and how did we turn it around? And the good news is we did turn it around, but it was really tough. I suddenly thought, well, maybe I can find an old dilapidated building which has gone to wreck and ruin, and and maybe I can buy that and turn it into our head office. And and what what had been worrying me up until then is we had been focusing on 5- to 18-year-olds from 2006 until 2014. But we were doing so much good work with the five to 18-year-olds in a country where over 50% of children drop out of school before writing grade the last year of school. They're 12, 13, 14, 15, they drop out. Over 50%, it's scary. So we were always aiming to make sure the kids don't drop out of school if they were in our programs, don't turn to drugs, to crime, violence, gangs, all of that. But then when they're 18, They sit unemployed in our townships because in South Africa, over 60% of the 18 to 35 are unemployed. Mm -hmm. And that's horrific. So it worried me that we're doing such great work with these youngsters. But then when they turn 18, I'm I'm not structured to be able to take them further. But as it turned out, God had a plan because the landlord kicks me out. I'm now trying to be creative and think, how am I going to save this? And I found an old I found the old the old dilapidated building I was thinking of, and I put in an offer, and the the estate agent said, well, the seller has already um, received an offer from a businessman to knock this building down and build a shopping center. It was the most perfect place on the busiest road to our townships. And he said, so I said, well tell the tell a businessman would he like to make a businessman rich or help the kids?" And so he gave me three weeks, Lisa to come up with 2.6 million rand which in south africa is an absolute fortune 95% of people don't even um get that to retire on so i just decided that's it i'm going to go for it mm-hmm. despite everybody thought i was crazy they said no kevin this is ridiculous you are never going to find 2.6 million to buy this build because that was what the land cost basically but then what about build- rebuilding there's another you know i estimated another say 3 million and I just went for it. Three weeks, and it's a long story. It's quite an interesting chapter on how the hell did we raise two point six million, and then a further six million is what I what it cost to build because I went big. Once I'd raised the two point six million, I don't forget I had to keep that money totally separate to running our programs. So donors are one thing I've always believed in is being totally transparent. Credible, so that you, so that donors and supporters want to come and help you, and that's what I've been very pedantic about, making sure we build relationships with our donors and our supporters, and they can see what what goes on. So once I've got that 2.6 million, I said that's it. We're going to go big, and I built a beautiful youth skill center in addition to our headquarters. Our, our team built a youth skill center on those premises. And that was tough trying to run run the programs, raise the money, build this building. But the good news is, uh, we moved in in twenty end of twenty fifteen. Our first um, youth skills programs were in twenty sixteen, and Lisa to date, since then we've placed one thousand three hundred and five students in employment. And we started 153 new businesses because the students that come there can choose various skills, hospitality, sewing, beauty and wellness, technical and handyman, retail readiness, and then entrepreneurship. So that was a big challenge to overcome. And then I thought things were now flying. We moved in. We started running our programs. And in 2018, my world came crashing down. There's a very radical political party in South Africa. And they placed one of their guys in our in our offices and he tra- they tried to take over that building. They wanted it for themselves. They tried to get rid of me, all my managers, all my board, and they really, oh, I had death threats. You can't believe the death threats I had coming from all angles. People were phoning me from overseas. Please, Kevin, just close it down. We don't want to come to your funeral. The board of Amy Foundation took a vote and said we cannot risk lives because they were targeting the board they were targeting me the managers and they said we we now must vote and and they voted to close amy foundation down you notice I, i i talk amy foundation it used to be called amy bill foundation we changed it to amy foundation about 10 years ago and that was one of the most traumatic times i couldn't sleep because i was thinking why must one political party one person try and Ruin all the good that's happening. And all I was thinking of is all the the children and youth that we've saved, that we've given a better life, that we've given opportunities, that we've put on the road to success, all my staff that almost lose their jobs. And I I just thought, I can't do this. And I just woke up the one morning, I said, That's it. I'm not going to allow this. I went to the board. I said, I've never gone against what you've said or whatever. I'm asking you to give me time. I'm going to turn the situation around all the death threats, all the negative stuff. And we did. Um, it took us three months. It's a long story how we did it. But we turned it around and the guy that they planted ran for the hills. He disappeared. once I, because I obviously got lawyers involved, um, pro bono, because I, as a nonprofit, you can't take donors money for lawyers. The lawyers, top law firm came on board with me and we went for them. And we we won and we turned it around. And what's that, 18, that's four years ago and we are we are thriving so that's why i say if we could if i could get through some of those things i've shared with you Mm. nothing is impossible I, i i always say please never let somebody say to you you can't do this you can't do that it's impossible Nothing is impossible. <laughs>
0: it it sort of cements my view of South Africa, but Cape, Cape Town, actually, particularly is, is this beautiful, beautiful place where people are living generally very happily. Obviously, there's a, a lot of hardship as well, but that bubbling under the surface is this sort of slightly sort of menacing lawlessness. And I have two questions that sort of came out of that. One, I really need you to tell us about Amy. I know a little bit about Amy and the Amy Foundation and working with the people who murdered her and two after that i'd like you to tell me about your childhood growing up under apartheid because that you know must have been an incredibly unusual and difficult time less difficult for you of course because you're a white man but yeah first of all tell us tell us about amy Uh,
1: maybe i could just quickly touch on your first comment about what's bubbling under the surface yeah okay yeah absolutely yeah you are right you know I must say South Africa is remarkable because we did avoid a revolution when Nelson Mandela came out of jail. We avoided a bloodbath and, and this whole Ubuntu, which is what I'm passionate about, is sharing with people, how do you practically apply Ubuntu? Because he is the epitome of Ubuntu, you know, no bitterness, no anger. He he really tried to reconcile and bring everybody together. But what has evolved in South Africa is a lot of greed and corruption in government, a lot of inefficiency, President Zuma for I think he was in power for 10 years, stole billions and it left the country sitting in Saudi Arabia, which caused the country's economy to go down. So what has happened is you've got this very unequal society now. You've got a, you've got rich and poor and 90% of the people are poor, living in shacks and townships. So the government, the ANC government, when they came into power, made lots of promises. And now they haven't been able to keep that. So people are getting restless and there's a lot of tension and anger boiling. But having said that, There's still, it's a remarkable, there's so much warmth about black people in South Africa. And I I really have had the privilege, and maybe I can jump to that last question and then go on to Amy. Um, You talked about growing up during apartheid. That was one of the most saddest things for me that the government kept white, black, colored, and Indian people. Because I'm, I'm not sure if you know that South Africa has a very big Indian population in Durban probably one of the biggest populations of Indians outside of India. Sadly, that's what apartheid did. It categorized people into white, black, colored Indian. And I never had the privilege of meeting people of other religion, color, culture, language. And only once I started working did I realize how much I'd missed out out on. Because then I started meeting people of different color, culture, religion. And it was a remarkable revelation for me. And I learned so much. And that's why Ubuntu for me is so important, because what Ubuntu says is you must respect people of other religion, kind of culture, language. So many people in the world that I see right now, they don't. They they it's only it's their way or no way. Uh trying to force their own religion on someone, trying to force their belief on someone. And that's where I think we're going wrong in the world. That's why I believe so passionately about Ubuntu, because that's what that's what I started finding. And I've really grown leaps and bounds since I started uh, meeting people. of um, And I was, I was already 18. Imagine I missed out on all. My mother used to be scared because I would go in and visit my Indian and colored friends. And what are the police, what are the police catching? But it was just an, an amazing opportunity to, to open up and become a better person. So that's my bit on that. And then who was Amy? She was a remarkable young girl, young lady, 25, when she came to South Africa, she graduated from Stanford University in the United States. And in 1990, all over television was Nelson Mandela being released from jail. And she was working for Bill Clinton. And she said, please, I want to go to that country and help them. So she got a Fulbright scholarship to come to South Africa for one year. And she arrived at the age of 25. She basically worked at one of our universities, working with all of the um, our current president, Sir Ramaphosa, and various other today ANC dignitaries. She helped write the constitution of South Africa. Very bright young girl. And then we had our first elections in April 94. Earlier in 1993, she started educating people on why you should vote and the necessity to vote. And in August, 1993, there was a peaceful political rally happening in the township of Guguleto in South Africa. Now, Amy didn't know this peaceful rally was going on. In 1993, black people still couldn't get into groups, uh, couldn't congregate. So the police came and broke up this political rally. And there was already a lot of tension in, in the townships because one of the very uh, strong ANC cadres, Chris Harney had been murdered by a white Polish immigrant. <clears throat> so she didn't know this peaceful political rally had been broke, was even happening. She, Two of her black friends from United, University of the Western Cape had phoned her and said, "Amy, our taxi left us behind. Can't you just drop us in the township?" Of course she would. She never saw colour. So off she drives in. Now the police have just broken up this rally in a mob form. Now I think wherever you are in the world, where there's where there's a mob that's formed, they become there's no logic and rationale. So in Amy's driving into the township, here comes the mob and they see her and they go wild because now her white face epitomised all the hatred of apartheid, you growing up, your parents are saying, we're hungry tonight because of the white man. You can't go on the beach, all of that. So they just went crazy and they killed her. She died in August 1993. Her two friends were shouting, screaming, leave her, leave her. She's one of us. But they didn't listen. Thank goodness the story didn't end there. Because four boys went to jail for her death. They were sentenced to 20 years. And in 1997, Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Desmond Tutu formed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the TRC, which is a very powerful process in the history of South Africa. What happened was they would bring the victim and the offender together and get them to talk. And just a, a little bit of info, Northern Ireland adopted this model because they, they I've, I've done some work in the prisons there. They, for many years, had... A high reoffending rate of youngsters going to jail for petty crime. Fourteen years old, in and out, in and out, until they used this model of sitting the victim and the offender across the table, and, and the victim would say, "Do you see what what you did to me May, by by hitting me over the head and stealing my pension? I broke my hip, and now look at me." And and the reoffending rate went down. So the TRC was a powerful process, and when Amy's parents met the four boys they realized these were 18 year old boys they're not murderers apartheid had robbed them of their youth so they then forgave the four boys and went a step further and applied to the government to release them from jail and there was a lot of let's say hate mail around the world saying how dare you release those murderers who killed your daughter but amy's parents knew that was the right thing to do i i still bump into people who say it's impossible I don't believe the parents forgave them and I can genuinely say to you that the parents forgave those four boys and when they were released in 1998 after spending five years in jail two of the four boys asked to reach out to the parents again and they said to the parents we are so humbled by the fact that you could forgive us for what we did we now want to dedicate our life to the youth and that's how the Amy Beale Foundation started in 1998 with the parents and the two boys, and they started programs. And then, tragically, um, fast forward a few years, Amy's father died in early 2001, 2002, of with no medical insurance, and he was he suddenly got ill and died. And that's what really caused the Amy Beale Foundation to um, almost close back in 2006. But luckily. I got involved and we, we've got an amazing team that we that work at Amy Foundation that we brought are, up.
0: What are the those four boys men doing now?
1: Well the two still work with me. Um I I never met the other two of the four. and um, they got on with their lives, which is fine. One of the four was naughty. Um and he did not the two that worked for me, uh, to be honest with you. Um he raped somebody. But our two guys and Tobekoe and Easy went to his house and made him own up. They took him and said, "You are going to own up for what you did." And so he was arrested. But then he, he and then he got on and he sorted his life out. But I do want to point out that there's so many terrible things of apartheid. But one of them, um, we've we built a country where there's a lot of rape, a lot of abuse of women that we are trying to address. And it, it's a it's a historical thing when you're growing up in a shack with ten people in your shack and you see your father or your uncle beating or raping or doing, you know, it it carries on. So we are trying to teach our our girls to say no. You know, if if a boy says, hey, sleep with me, show me you love me, say no, you wait. Or we're saying to boys, you can't just take what you want. And that's another focus of Amy Foundation. It's so important. So the other two are amazing young men. Uh, Intubeco is a leader easy the other one is not a leader as such he's more a worker and you can't have all leaders you can't have everybody in managerial positions but early on i noticed that in uh, was a really great leader so he became our program manager and he, he carried on as our program manager right until about 2017 and then we got very big um with you know five centers over a thousand kids and he was quite honest and he said this is too big for me i i he was a driver before and he just didn't want to do it anymore. And he was—he he really loved being an entrepreneur, which we we encouraged him to do while he worked with us. So at the moment he's got his own businesses and he works with us, not as the program manager anymore, but he does our tours. He also is designing our whole vocational skills training program for uh, 10s to 12s, which is your 16 to 18, 19 year olds. He's running that whole program for Amy Foundation. So and easy as loves woodwork. And, and he's he's also got on with his life. He's not working right now on the foundation, but he's in touch with us all the time. So that's why I say it's a story of forgiveness, reconciliation and restorative justice as opposed to retributive justice.
0: What is life like now in the time sh- townships? We used to get a lot of, you know i uh, see a lot of documentaries a lot of stuff on the news and it, it feels like from from this end from the other side of the world that it's all gone a little bit quiet what is life like for people now is there still an incredible amount of hardship
1: it's terribly hardly so because because of those year, the zuma years as we call it with all that money leaving the country the economy just hit rock bottom now the the war in ukraine has also affected you know exports imports times are tough but I must say to you, the resilience of the black people in the townships is phenomenal. Um, there's just so much creativity. There's a lot of entrepreneurship going on. It's just very hard for, for you know, 80% of them, they just don't, even to be an entrepreneur, they don't have seed funding. They can't get their businesses going, but there's still a lot of warmth. I say that, but every now and again, it boils, something boils over. You'll get, like we had a taxi strike recently. Because they they felt that they weren't being looked, looked at properly. And so there were some buses burned. But then it'll quieten down again. Uh, then we had some strikes in KwaZulu-Natal um, last year where people went wild and started stealing and going into stores because they were desperate. So there is an air of desperation in a lot of the townships, uh, which is worrying because I don't believe we really cleaned out the wound from 30 years, you know, all those years ago, we just sort of put a plaster over it. And now with all the hardship and all the unemployment, as I said, 18 to 35 year olds over 60% unemployed. Now that's unacceptable. You know, there's there's so much desperation. So that's for me, the big concern, we've got a lot of a lot of building to do. And we, we need to change a lot of things. You know, we need to start businesses, we need to Empower these youngsters in the townships to be able to start their own businesses. So I'm on a mission in the Amy Foundation to start as many new businesses, get them seed funding, and because the ones that come through our programs do become the future leaders, and that that's that's the future of South Africa. But I must say, to a lot of people have lost hope. There's a lot of South Africans who've emigrated. They've given up. They've said, well, they put their 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 faith in the new president after Ramaphosa, Cyril Ramaphosa, after Zuma. And sadly, he hasn't been able to correct it enough. You know, we have had ESCOM, which is our power utility, which has been failing, all of our state-owned enterprises have been failing because there was no investment all those years that Zuma was taking the money out, there was no investment. So a lot of people, whites and colored, even some black, have emigrated because they don't see a future. But I do believe, and I'm I'm a I'm a realist, but I'm an optimist as well, that the success of South Africa is going to be where government is failing businesses and corporates private individuals and nonprofits like amy foundation are going to pick up the slack and and succeed in where government is failing
0: do you feel safe to t- tourist's face uh, safe i mean you mentioned death threats and obviously there's a lot of corruption in many countries around the world but here in the uk for example you know we feel relatively safe that the government are not going to kill us i mean they might starve us by the looks of it at the moment or cut off our heating or uh, you know financially call us cause a lot of a lot of problems but we're we're relatively safe i mean do you feel safe are tourists safe when they come to south africa
1: absolutely lisa we are getting hundreds of uh, tour groups coming to south africa and they all Feel safe. We we at the Amy Foundation run what we call Amy's Cultural Township Tours. Instead of a township tour, where you just drive through the township, we take them and see. They go into our after-school programs and music and drama. We we each week we taking groups in and and there's a lot of tour groups coming into South Africa. Obviously, uh, we will keep our nose to the ground. For instance, if there's going to be a strike like the taxi strike, we'll make sure that we stay away from that for that day. But generally, everything else. We feel very safe. We've got to be careful, but I, I think that's anywhere in the world. I can be walking down the street in Italy and somebody might take a chance and steal something. I always mm. say, don't walk down the street in Cape Town with all your jewelry showing and don't put temptation in somebody's way because they are hungry. They are desperate. But generally, um, it's fine. We, we Honestly, we are welcoming so many groups. We also welcome university groups now. So I encourage people not to be scared to come and just enjoy the warmth of the people of South Africa and the beauty, and you'll see for yourself.
0: What about you and your travels? Uh, you mentioned working in Northern Ireland.
1: Yes, what well, in my travels with I feel safe or what? Do you yeah, mean just... no,
0: no, just generally. What have you? How have your travels been in your life? You mentioned working in Northern Ireland, and and also how was that? And also, I'm interested in when was the first time you left the country? You know, growing up under apartheid, where uh, for for many people. Finances were scarce, uh, not for everyone, of course. But when, yeah, when was the first time you left the country and where did you go?
1: I was 23. One of my philosophies has always been uh, you can't pray and sit back and wait. If you're going to pray for God to help you, you've got to get out and do it yourself and then He'll bless you. And so my motto has always been pray and hard work. And so I started work at the age of 16, working on a Friday afternoon in, in one you know, like your local Tesco and earning money, saving that up. And then I joined banking at the age of 17 and they paid for me to do a degree part-time because my parents couldn't afford it. So I did a Bachelor of Commerce part-time, but I started saving my money. And at 23, I went on a six-week uh, trip with four, with three friends. We hired a camper van, went from the... Oh, When I think of it now, you're bringing back memories of, you know, in the UK. And we even went up with, we hired it in the UK and then went over to Europe and we went right through Europe um, as far as obviously East Germany, we, I, I do recall we went one day in through Checkpoint Charlie for the day. We had a 24-hour visa and we had to be out again, and that was a phenomenal experience. It, it, it just opened up as a conservative South Africa, South African, you know, wow, the big world, and that ignited a passion for travel. Because two years later, I went with one of those three guys, and we backpacked through Europe for and UK for three months. And then, um, ever since then, I've wanted to travel more. And I I, I was blessed with an amazing career. So I, I earned well. And then I started, I took my family on our first trip overseas when my youngest daughter was nine, because I thought earlier than that, it's a waste of money. And we, we traveled uh, throughout Europe for, I think it was four weeks. And I've done quite a few trips then. And then I've managed to get um, some good uh, lecturing at universities in the Netherlands. I've done a lot of work in the Netherlands and in the U S for the university of Miami. I've got good friends in Los Angeles where I've done some fundraisers there. And I don't know, you must Google angel city Chorale. It's, it's a big choir in Los Angeles. They went to the finals of America's got talent and I was introduced to them. And they came to south africa a hundred of they they have a hundred business people who practice every week and they go around america singing they are phenomenal and then they paid for me to take some youngsters to los angeles so i took 15 young kids and honestly lisa we have a saying in kosa called ukuhamba Kukubona." travel opens a window to the world these kids just blossomed they are all now finishing grade 12 and doing careers and then I had a very wealthy businessman in Northern Ireland who paid me to take 16 girls in hockey to Northern Ireland. And all those girls who graduated now from, from university, it, it, it really just showed you what travel can do as an education. And even a few years later, he paid to take some more kids and, and staff. So For me, travel is just the most amazing education, and I love it. I I was also lucky to be um, uh, selected to join the European Association of Children and Youth 11 years ago, and it's an organization which focuses on children and youth in Europe, and every country is one board member, and then they have one non-European board member, which is me, so I've had the privilege to go and have meetings in Moscow, in Poland, Krakow, Prague in Czech Republic, um, Vilnius in Lithuania, Riga in Latvia, in France, in Germany. It's just yeah, I love travel and it just and to meet people from all walks of life is just so enriching.
0: I love that and I love that saying, please tell me again what the saying is.
1: Ukuhamba kukubona. Ukuhamba kukubona travel opens the window to the world. And actually there's a chapter about my travels the, the, that chapter focuses on funny things that happened to me during those travels where people said it's impossible. Like you'll never get a visa to go to Egypt. You'll never be able to let off the plane. Hello. Don't tell me it's impossible. We were in Egypt for a day and a half, you know? So the chapter on the travels just shares all the interesting things that happened. For instance, in France, when I was backpacking, we bought a Eurorail. And so we, we, we got on the train in France and and second class was full so we saw a seat in first class so we took it and the conductor started shouting at us we didn't know what he was saying and we tried to explain that second class is full as soon as it's in there's a seat we'll go there eventually we went there but in the middle of the night the train stopped and we saw blue lights flashing we thought this is weird what's going on and we looked out the window you won't believe it the police came and took us off the train put us in jail because the con- the, the train conductor said we were on the Train with no ticket. We didn't know what why we were in jail. We sat there for hours and hours, and eventually we found one person, because they were all talking in French. And we found one person that could understand us. And that's when we realized he lied. He said we had no ticket. We showed them our ticket and they let us out at 4 a.m. in the morning. It was freezing. So we were huddled on the train station at 4 a.m. waiting for another train. Like so that's just one of the stories I share. (laughs) There's lots of them.
0: Fantastic. Well, you better tell us where we can buy the book and where we can support the Amy Foundation. And then I'll ask you my last question.
1: Excellent. So amyfoundation.co.za. It's A-M-Y Foundation.co.za, And you can get the book on the Amy Foundation website and on the Ubuntu Foundation website. And Ubuntu is www.saubuntu.co.za. I would love people to get the book and we deliver it to your door anywhere in the world. So It would be lovely. And to support the Amy Foundation, you will be changing lives. That's my mission now is to get people to support Amy Foundation and be part of, we call anybody who supports Amy Foundation becomes a change maker.
0: Well, when I come over there, I will absolutely visit and I'll do one of the, the township cultural tours as well. That sounds fantastic.
1: Excellent.
0: So I'm going to ask you my last question now. My last question is always about music because I very much believe that music and travel uh, go hand in hand for many people in terms of cementing memories. I'm going to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable time and place of travel. What is the song and what is that memory?
1: I think for me it's Tina Turner. Excellent. I just love all of her songs. I'm just trying to think of the 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 one song, but I can just picture her. I just can't think of the name of the song. Now, okay, so let me the think. Is it what sort of period is it Tina Simply, the, is best, it simply of... the best. Simply I mean. the best. Simply the best. It just it just conjures up because I love what you're saying. Music, food, travel just brings it all together. Whether you in, I haven't had the privilege of being to South America, but one day I'm going to go there because I love the tango and the music and. So yeah, Tina Turner is simply the best because everybody has the best in them. And, and that's one of the talks I do is be the very best you can be every day. Everybody has so much good within them. And don't let anybody ever spoil that, you know?
0: Kevin, you've made me feel good just talking to you, which is wonderful. Um, so thank you. you so much for coming on the Big Trouble Podcast.
1: Can I maybe you can also share my email address if people want to get hold of me? It's apart from the website. It's Kevin at AmyFoundation.co.za. It's simple.
0: Fantastic! That's very brave of you. So if anyone wants to email you, they can. I love
1: it. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa, for this opportunity. And to your listeners, I hope to hear from lots of you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. I realize this podcast is evergreen, so you might be listening at any time of year. But in terms of us right now, the next episode will be our Christmas special with many, many wonderful people on there telling stories of yeah. business and stories.